Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. So we're going to start with, uh, well, not quite what I planned, but then there have been a couple of things in the news this week that definitely need to be addressed. Uh, a friend uh, sent me a text today, and I I want to read it to you. It was a uh, protest sign. It says, let's take a moment to honk to honor the sacrifice of our poor, brave school children who lay down their lives to protect our right to bear arms. Yeah, um, the Second Amendment is uh, supported by corporate hush money and has been weaponized as a political issue in this country, and everyone else thinks we are insane. I can't argue with them. The actual text of the Second Amendment is as follows. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Oh, uh, well, a well-regulated militia probably doesn't mean uh, 18-year-old lone wolves with military assault rifles uh, that are designed expressly to kill humans in wartime. Uh, I think they were thinking about muskets, actually, when they wrote that. So, so, so much for originalism. Um, you know, the uh, current Supreme Court, they're very against mission creep. If it wasn't, you know, in the Constitution or the Bill of Rights, well... You know, if it wasn't something that the Founding Fathers even conceived of, well, then, um, yeah, so much for that. I actually think the intention of the Founding Fathers here is pretty clear. They wanted to protect the Canadian border from incursions by the then British colony we now call Canada. That was the enemy abroad. This is just not a political issue. Speaking as a doctor, it can't be... We cannot continue to allow it to be framed as a political issue. This is a public health issue, and the gun lobby knows it. Did you ever hear of the Dickey Amendment? Well, here's how that happened. In 1993, an article published in the New England Journal of Medicine framed the issue as a public health emergency and gave shocking numbers to wit that if the trend lines continued, the number of children killed in the United States, or the uh, I, I think it was actually the number of people killed in the United States by firearms was going to surpass those killed in motor vehicle accidents. And that made, that seemed crazy to them. So they wrote an article. And that caused, well, a fair amount of discussion. What did Congress do with that information? Well, that same year, it passed a bill sponsored by Jay Dickey, a Republican from Arkansas, that gutted the entire CDC budget previously earmarked for firearms research, a budget, I might add, that underwrote that 1993 article in the New England Journal of Medicine. The document was artfully worded. I'll give it to them. Uh, I'll, I'll give it to them. They have smart lawyers. It was worded so ambiguously that no one was willing to fund anything related to guns. Uh, it basically froze all funding for any study related to guns because the penalty was losing your job if you funded it. So, yeah, nice job, guys. I wonder what the body count, count is, right? Well, let's let's see. In 2020, firearms surpassed all other categories in cause of death in children under 19. Also, the rate of increase in death by firearms to kids in that uh, in the period we're talking about, 20 years, uh, rose to twice that of death in adults. So the body count is now at 4,600, that is to say more than 4,000 kids per year. And it hasn't been much lower than 4,000 for the last decade. By the way, in 2020, 
another 3% of the U.S. population became first-time gun owners, exposing around 11 million kids to firearm in the home, many of these in the homes where people don't know how to keep their children safe. I have a I have a family member who, when I discuss this issue with him, tells, oh, the kids know not to touch the guns. The kids know that they'll get in big trouble if they touch the guns. But the kids know where the guns are, and they know where the key to the gun safe is. So what is that body count since 1993? Well, it's time to do some, it's time to do some actual research to see what works to actually save children's lives. Plenty of states have various limitations in place. I wonder if we funded it, what we could learn about reducing deaths using best practices originated by the states. So what was that total? Well, in 2020, it was about six children per 100,000. That's an epidemic, by the way, by public health standards. There, there are 78 million children in the United States. So if you work the math, that's 40, that's around 4,000 children per year for 19 years. So call it greater than 80,000 kids on Representative Dickey's and his contributors' bloody hands. This is just madness, pure and simple. We're, cra- we're being crazy, and we need to stop being this crazy. The next intrusion into best laid plans of uh, mice and Dr. Don is monkeypox. So I needed to comment on that and give you some information, but... First of all, I want to tell you a little moral tale or a little story about, well, let's call it behaviorism. You have to be careful what you reward, whether it's children, dogs, or the news media. What you reward is what you will see more of. So here's my little, my little tale. When I was 11 years old, I got a new puppy. I lived at the top of a very tall uh staircase in that hilly part of Los Angeles that you may be familiar with from uh, movie scenes. And it was a very long walk down the stairs to pick up the paper daily, one of my chores. So I had the bright idea that I could train the dog to bring the paper once she got big enough. And so I came up with the idea that I would reward the dog with a treat, in this case, a piece, a quarter of a piece of buttered toast, uh, when she brought the paper up to the top of the porch. And, well, here's what happened. One day, the dog brought a second paper, and my mother, being the tender-hearted woman that she was, gave the dog a second piece of buttered toast. Well, the dog was very clear that the dog should bring papers. And so the next morning, I had three papers. And before the week was out, I had all the papers on the block on my porch every morning and had inherited effectively a paper route. Well, the news media is like a trained dog, reinforced for fetching um, what will get noticed, what will get attention. And we all now have a little bit of hypervigilance on new viruses, hence we'll pay attention to such a story, hence a rather large focus on this new virus. And I have to tell you, as I delved into the details, I also had a little deja vu on AIDS, HIV, which came along when I was a college student and later as a doctor was one of the first epidemics that I had to deal with. And uh, so for me, it's deja vu all over again. So what are we talking about? Well, there's been about 120 cases uh, of monkeypox. This is a rare viral disease. It's been reported recently in at least 11 non-African countries in the past week. And this is happening in separate populations across the world where it doesn't usually appear. This thing's been around since 1958, what we know about it. It's thought to transmit from wild animals like rodents to people or from people, infected people to 
other people. And uh, and it, about a couple thousand cases occur in Africa annually. And there have been a few outbreaks in isolated areas, but cases outside of Africa are limited and generally associated with the importation of infected animals or travel to Africa. And in the past week alone, uh, we've had more cases detected outside of Africa than all of the years since 1970, when the virus was first identified as being able to cause disease in humans. But this isn't a super contagious virus. It doesn't transmit uh, through droplets or aerosols. It's related to the smallpox virus. So fortunately, we already have uh, treatments and vaccines on hand. And it's spread by close contact with body fluids, such as saliva from coughing. Sexual activity would also be a close second for the for the exchange of body fluids. And so this is a virus that's going to affect very close contacts of someone uh, far fewer than what you could get from a person shedding SARS-CoV in 2020 uh, sitting in the same restaurant with you which, of course, was documented in uh, China in early 2020 as having occurred. Monkeypox also triggers enlarged lymph nodes, and you get pox, right, which are like fluid-filled blisters. They start out clear, they rapidly turn yellow, they break, they scab, and they heal. In the case of chickenpox, they heal without scarring, one of the differentiating uh, factors between that and smallpox. And it's... uh, there are several strains in Africa which have been identified. The strain that is spreading is generally milder. It has a 1% death rate in poor rural populations. Of course, we don't actually know that because no one has died from it. In fact, as far as I am aware, no one has been hospitalized from it. But what people are wondering is, did it suddenly become mutate and become more readily transmitted? Of course, because we've seen that happen with the with the uh, Omicron. But there's some really substantial differences between these two viruses. SARS-CoV-2 is a rapidly evolving RNA virus. It has it's just one single strand of nucleotides. That means that it will whirl and twist in the wind. Monkeypox virus is a DNA virus. It's a big DNA virus. So it's a a ladder. It's in a helix. And because of that, it has two copies of itself. So as it replicates, it has proofreaders that run along and make sure that the DNA matches. So it's very unlikely to mutate rapidly. It's got its own built-in stability mechanisms. And it's weird that there's no... Uh, apparent connection from the groups that have shown up, but, and there's no evidence that it could spread asymptomatically, but that's, uh, that's troubling. What we do see is that the, uh, all of the clusters have included men who, uh, from 50, 20 to 50, almost entirely men, almost entirely gay or bisexual, or men who have sex with men. And, Sexual activity certainly constitutes close contact, so I think it's plausible that this got introduced into the community of men who have sex with men and has been circulating there. And, of course, uh, HIV was another such virus that came to our attention in that cohort in the Western world, although it is uh, much more of a heterosexual virus in Africa. Another quick little mm, trivial detail, but an interesting one. In the 1950s in Amsterdam, a sailor came back from the sea and he had a very strange disease. He had a strange skin cancer. He developed an odd pneumonia. He seemed to have no immune system whatsoever. And he died rapidly. It was so freaky that the doctors saved specimens. They saved his blood. They saved tissue specimens. They just put him away and said, well, someday if this ever shows up again, Uh, I wonder what it was. Maybe we'll be able to figure it out. Well, it was AIDS in the 1950s coming out of Africa where it was circulating for God knows how long and not noticed. I think we have, at least in terms of what's going on, something similar. 
There's been an outbreak in the United States in 2003. That came from a, a shipment of rodents that spread to prairie dogs in Illinois, pet prairie dogs. You know, rats talk to the prairie dogs. Prairie dogs get turned into pets, infected about 70 humans. So we've already had that. Fortunately, we have a vaccination that works against this. We can dust it off and start using it. Those of you who were vaccinated uh, against smallpox, which is to say the older and therefore more vulnerable population when it comes to most diseases, probably have an edge in resistance here, which is just an interesting accident of history. But uh, any they stopped doing smallpox vaccination in, sometime in the 70s, I think about 1974, but I don't hold me to that exact date. So what I am saying is that I think we can take a deep breath, not freak out, not worry that shutdowns are coming back. What will be employed here is a technique called ring vaccination. You find an index ca- case, you you basically vaccinate everyone that might have shared saliva with them. Probably don't even need to vaccinate healthcare workers because yeah, we're probably not going to be in that situation. Maybe anesthesiologists, but aside from that, uh, probably not necessary to reinvent the wheel here. And we can dust off and try some of our lovely, fancy new antivirals brought to us recently, courtesy of uh, COVID-19. And some of these antivirals will probably work over a broad, broad spectrum of disease. So I guess it's that old adage my grandma said, it's an ill wind that blows no good. Personally, I don't think this ill wind is going to be much more than a breeze. Let's all take a deep breath and hope that I'm right. So I think I will announce the next part of the program, which is basically dispatches from a conference I attended remotely, virtually and virtuously, I might add, last weekend. Uh, This was a conference about neuroinflammation, and it was extremely interesting. I learned a great deal about inflammation and how it affects the brain, a disease called pandas, stiff man syndrome, and certain aspects of paraneoplastic disease, which I'll explain in a moment. But what is neuroinflammation? Well, it's basically where antibodies or inflammatory immune factors of various sorts are able to cross the blood-brain barrier and turn on the immune system in the brain. Let's talk for a moment about plasma blasts. These are the Ig-producing beta cells that are in all of our bodies. That's what we are trying to teach to make uh, antibodies when we take a vaccine or a booster. And a lot of the antibodies that you find in multiple sclerosis patients, in their spinal cord, I might add, are antiviral antibodies against Epstein-Barr virus. You'll also find antibodies against measles, uh, German measles, uh, herpes, cytomegalovirus, and human human retroviruses, HERV, H-E-R-V. And It's it's very very interesting that there's actually there's a there's a antigen called EBNA which has a repeating sequence. It's found in viruses, and it's something that many viruses have. EBNA one. It has lots of prolines in it, and when you look in the human repertoire, if you will, of of general issue antibodies, uh, there's a built-in anti-EBNA at birth. But here's the problem. This EBNA1 antibody cross-reacts with a molecule that's found on the immune cells in the brain, the oligodendrocytes and the astrocytes. And so if this antibody gets stimulated it's going to potentially get into the brain and start attacking the brain. And we seem to see that many multiple sclerosis patients have a subtle affinity 
that just makes them far more likely to be able to have this particular antibody upregulated and cross into the brain. We're also seeing people with a certain kind of uh, human uh, tissue compatibility antigen. So HLA class 2, these are the things that we use for organ transplants. And so you know that you can't necessarily transplant my kidney into your body, and that's because our HLAs don't match. So at any time, 25% of people with multiple sclerosis will have antibody, uh, this EBNA glyocam antibody in their bloodstream. This is a trigger acting as a molecular mimic. And a lot of this neuroinflammation is about molecular mimicry. So we need to think about this in the light of another neuroinflammatory disease that occurs specifically in children. It's called Pediatric Acute Onset Neuropsychiatric Syndrome, PANS. It's often associated with group A strep, and that's how it was originally discovered, that in that group it's called PANDAS. And it has some very uh, characteristic sorts of behaviors. And the primary one is a sudden onset of obsessive con- uh, compulsive disease, OCD, in children. And it's often relapsing and remitting. So the child will become very high OCD. They will get better, possibly the improvement misattributed to therapy or drugs. Then they will have a flare when, when they are re-exposed to in, this, to, in the case of pandas, group A strep. You can see the changes in their brains. This is interesting. The basal ganglia, the part of the brain, the caudate, the globus pallidus, the putamen, uh, these are enlarged. You can actually make the diagnosis on MRI. You also see evidence of increased gray matter volume and microglial activation. You know where else you see exactly these same changes in the brain? in Tourette's syndrome, which is a case of tics and verbal tics, particularly in Tourette's. But in these children, physical tics and OCD are how it manifests. What does the basal ganglia do? Well, it is an inhibitor for motor movement, twitching, in other words, and an inhibitor for behavioral uh, out, uh, displays. And another absolutely distinctive thing that you don't otherwise see in the children is movement during REM sleep. So these children, instead of being paralyzed during REM, are able to move around, possibly kick or otherwise act out their dreams. And this is different from sleepwalking, which does not occur during REM sleep. In adults, by the way, when you see this movement, it's highly predictive of the development of Parkinson's disease. Children with PANS also often get joint pain. In fact, up to 25% of them are diagnosed with Jumidoyle rheumatoid arthritis. And if you give them steroids, it reduces flares. Uh, otherwise, the flares last about three months. You can also look in the blood. You can see increased monocytes. That's a marker. Monocytes, you know, mononucleosis. Well, monocytes in the blood become macrophages in the tissue, and they go and chomp up things and release chemicals that sensitize the body tissues. Macrophages are how you can inject uh, DNA for spike protein into an arm, have the cells make the spike protein. The macrophages eat the spike protein, break it up, and then hold out little pieces of it so that the immune system learns to recognize it. That's how we get our T-cell immunity. So T-cells are an important piece, as you know, if you've been listening to this program. But let's move on to a different topic. Let's talk about stiff man syndrome. So stiff man syndrome is what is called a perineoplastic syndrome. It's a neurological symptom. And what you see is a very, very stiff body. The person is often unable to bend forward or backwards at all. 
there's no pain initially with this. They also can't flex their hips normally. And they will subsequently develop stiffness in their upper uh, extremities. And they have an interesting phenomenon on their eyeballs. They have what's called impaired vertical gaze. So I'm sure you've seen on television uh, or in a movie the you know field neurologic check when someone gets hit on the head, somebody will take their finger and move it back and forth across the eyeballs. Well, actually, in real medical life, you go sideways and up and down. You want to make sure that the eyeballs go up and down. If they can't go up, that is almost pathognomic of this stiff man syndrome. So what would you want to do as a doctor seeing that? Well, you actually would want to check a specific antibody test, something called GAD65, which stands for glutamic acid decarboxylase enzyme. And if you look, you'll find this antibody in two diseases, both autoimmune. One of them is type uh, 1 diabetes, the diabetes where your immune system is attacking your pancreas. You'll see low levels of this as well as other anti-pancreas antibodies. But in stiff man syndrome, these levels are sky high, more than 2,000 times the upper limit of normal. And let me tell you, at an antibody level, that's impressive. And if you start with immune therapy, you can make a huge difference to these conditions. One of the therapies that you can do is something available at just about every hospital in the country. It's called plasmapheresis. It's a way of basically filtering the plasma and cleaning it out from antibodies. You can also give intravenous immunoglobulins that uh, which will attack the antibodies, and there are other therapies. So we all need to be a little bit more alert for this. This is not Parkinson's disease, but it is frequently, frequently mistaken for it. So we all need to have a, a different index of suspicion when we see this level of stiffness, especially if the vertical gaze is impaired. So that's a quick little tidbit out to my medical colleagues who listen to this program and to all of those nurses and other healthcare providers who've written to me over the years. Thank you very much for continuing to listen to the podcast. What else can brain inflammation do? Well, it can cause depression. And there was actually a study where they took people who had treatment-resistant depression which, and gave them the anti-tumor necrosis factor alpha drug infleximab. This is often used for rheumatoid arthritis. And it worked in people who had an HSCRP, that is to say, high-sensitivity C-reactive protein, an easily obtainable blood test, one I check annually in my patients because I'm always looking for trouble that might be invisible except in the blood. And if it's above five and st- then you sh- and the person has depression, they stand a good chance of having inflammation-related depression. It's actually 30% of people with depression. And this would include people, for example, who get depression after being bitten by a tick. Babesiosis, one of the tick-borne illnesses, is notorious for causing depression. And a- antibody therapy is helpful. By the way, If you want to check the blood of someone with depression, you should also look for interleukin-1, interleukin-6, tumor necrosis factor, and interferon. They'll all be elevated. So a good uh, autoimmune panel should raise, well, basically a high sensitivity C-reactive protein in a depressed patient, especially if they're treatment-resistant. Well, you definitely want to check an autoimmune panel. These people have a much greater risk of suicide than the average Uh, depressed person. And you can give them a dose of infleximab, and if you get remission of their depression, then that tells you that that's what you're dealing with. By the way, sometimes drug response is helpful. People who have this tend to respond very well to Welbutrin, whereas people who are not inflamed tend to respond better to uh, SSRIs like Prozac and Paxil. So 
another interesting tidbit about neuroinflammation. One of the other articles that I found fascinating was about the microbiome in autism. Now, we all, you've heard ad nauseum from me about the human microbiome. The human genome is very small. The microbiome is very big. We have 150 times more genes in the microbiome than we have uh, in our own genome. We've essentially outsourced a lot of our DNA to the microbiome. We got rid of those. It was inefficient, plus it could mutate. We'll just put it in the bacteria, and the bacteria effectively are living inside our bodies and supplying us with nutrients and all sorts of useful services. The analogy between the mitochondria in a eukaryotic cell, which is highly efficient energy factory and has lost a lot of its genes uh, because it doesn't need them because it's living inside a cell. Mitochondria were at one point a free living bacterium, but they decided to specialize. Well, the microbiome was free living soil bacteria that decided that it was safer and there was a whole bunch of uninhabited territory that that was inside of the guts of animals. And so those bacteria took root and grew where opportunity allowed. And then you started getting genes switching back and forth. And before you know it, the microbiome produces about 90% of the serotonin that comes out of our body, about 50% of the dopamine. And about 70% of our immune cells go to school in the microbiome. In fact, the microbiome regularly turns over in terms of all of the cells that are surrounding it and keeping it in check. And it's essentially because those cells are learning who's the good guys, who's the bad guys, who's the friend, who's the foe, and the microbiome is teaching them that. And we've now established that the lymph tissue, a lot of that surrounding the uh, microbiome, because that's how we absorb our fats, a lot of that surrounding the gut, I mean, because that's how we absorb our fats. We have lymphatic transport of soluble signals, actually working like neurotransmitters, working like dopamine, working like serotonin, many signals coming into the lymphatics, going up into the thoracic duct and dumping into the circulation where they migrate all over the body. So what does this have to do with autism? Well, studies using uh, models of autism have shown that if the pregnant mice have an infection, the offspring will show autism-type behaviors. There's actually an agent, it's called poly-1 colon C, immunoactivator, and you it's used to make a mouse model of autism. You basically dose the pregnant mice with this, and you have a high yield of offs- of baby mice that are autistic. And here's where it gets really interesting. If you then, after injecting this into the pregnant mouse, if you inoculate her gut and the guts of the offspring with a very commonplace bacteria called Bacterioides fragilis, you will prevent the autism. Why is this happening? There is actually a metabolite associated with autism that's coming from the gut that is blocked by the uh, the administration of B. fragilis, presumably because B. fragilis uses it as a food supply. There's a closely related molecule called paracresol that is found in the blood and body tissues of autistics. And it's essentially made by the liver in breaking down one of these bacterial metabolites. So in experiments, it's been shown that being positive for this EPS causes increased fear and increased activity in the limbic system of mice. It also causes connectivity changes, changes in the way, in other words, different regions of the brain communicate with each other. And in the area around the thalamus, we see a case of arrested development of certain neurons, the oligodendrocytes, which should mature and foster this connectivity, actually don't develop properly. These are responsible for myelination of the white matter tracts. So if you don't have, so you have less myelinization if this protein is present. That means the brain does not mature normally and the transmissions are slower. 
and with thinner myelin, you get differences in the performance and high levels of anxiety, high levels of repetitive behavior. And the EPS mice, they aren't sick. They move around just as much. But if you put them on an open platform, they're going to migrate to the side. They're not going to explore it. That is not normal behavior for a mouse. There's been some uh, studies on could we give something orally that would absorb the CPS, and there's actually a drug that's legal in Japan. It's called AST120, and it's basically a supercharged form of activated charcoal. It binds phenolic aromatics. That's the stuff that this EPS is. And by the way, that looks like a, that looks like a solid connection. If you give this to these mice, you improve performance. This is showing that the microbiome is making a compound that is highly associated with inflammation in the brain. This inflammation is associated with antibodies against a specific antibody. If you treat that, absorb the thing that's the target of the antibody, rather, while it's being made in the gut, you actually improve the performance of the autistic mice. I do not know for a fact that this is being given in Japan for autism, but I will investigate. I'm extremely, extremely intrigued by this concept. Well, I hope you enjoyed that and found it interesting. Now it's time for some email. So let's start with Dan in Baltimore. Dan writes, love your podcast and continue to learn from it each week. I'm wondering if you can please share your thoughts on homeopathy. I can't find any scientific evidence that these preparations do anything more than placebos, which is not to say nothing, but can we continence an entire industry based on this effect? Thanks as always, Dan from Baltimore. Well, Dan, uh, that's a very thoughtful question. I'm going to start with the second half of it first. Can we continence an entire industry based on this effect? Well, uh, why not? We have a very, very low threshold for the entire medical device industry when it comes to showing that it's safe and effective. Uh, it basically has to not be dangerous and it can get the FDA seal of approval. It's just not dangerous. It may or may not fix your wrinkles. It may or may not cause you to lose weight. But as long as it won't hurt you, you can do all kinds of things to the human body with a quote-unquote FDA-approved device. Believe me, that's a very low bar. So I think the cat uh, has is out of the bag, the horse has left the barn, and we probably shouldn't think about uh, restriction at this point. I do think that your first question uh, about scientific evidence may have to do with the structure of the scientific evidence. And this is a problem that we've had in acupuncture as well. Here's the scoop. One of the basic premises of homeopathy is that it's very individualized. There is a long list of questions that you ask an individual before you decide what formula or quote-unquote remedy, as they call it in homeopathy, is going to be effective. And in acupuncture, it's very much the same thing. There are very few acupuncture treatments that are one-size-fits-all, and those, like, for example, using pericardium-6 for nausea, have been demonstrably validated in double-blind studies. So, But mostly what you have to do is a different needle pattern, or in the case of homeopathy, a different remedy. And the problem with that is when you do science, you have a protocol. Our protocol includes that you change one variable and that you have a placebo group. If we can't do that, then we can't reach the standards of validation of scientific evidence to get published in the first place. And that's a problem because that placebo effect, by the way, is a real thing that you can induce with brain stimulation using magnetic waves. So if you're talking about some sort of energetic medicine, who the hell cares whether it's a placebo effect or not? If you can actually shift that place in the brain and the patient's pain goes away or their symptoms vanish and stay vanished, you know, that's kind of all you can ask. But until we have that level of 
uh, funding for that kind of science and a willingness to allow different treatments to be considered. Let me rephrase that. We need to allow that John's lumbago and Sarah's lumbago and Frank's lumbago and Christine's lumbago might require four different treatments based on the principles of homeopathy as they emerge from an analysis of these individuals. So what we would have to do is allow for variations in the protocol, and that's not allowed. So it's kind of a catch-22 in terms of scientific evidence. So what you have in terms of the scientific literature is you have badly done studies with inappropriate treatments given to a large group of people, some of whom probably did respond, but not enough of them because you have to have a large number of people. And it wouldn't work, right? Because you wouldn't be giving the right treatment to the right people. Now, I could design a study where only people who responded to substance X, because that was the one that worked for them, that was their remedy, were given either their remedy or a placebo. I'd love to see that study. But you'd have to go out and find that cohort. And it's, to my knowledge, never been done in a way that would actually result in any kind of positive uh, statistically significant results. You would have to design the study in order to be able to see that. And in general, the people who are doing these studies are looking to debunk, not prove. So I think the fix is in. And I don't have a problem with people who want to use homeopathy. Uh, the couple of things that I think actually probably work generally are Arnica sublingually. And I know most plastic surgeons use homeopathic Arnica because it works just as well to put a little tablet under the person's tongue when you cut on their face and it, they don't bruise as much. And that makes you look like a better doctor and makes your patients happier. And yeah, so I know a lot of doctors who use homeopathy. My, I myself, I use it for poison oak. Uh, I follow it in the category that it won't work. Then I have done no harm. It works. I've done some good. And the basic concept, the explanatory model of acupuncture is that there is this thing called chi that flows through these channels. It's been hard to measure chi directly. So that's still kind of a fairy tale. It's not established. But if you, if you go as if, it kind of works if you behave as if. With homeopathy, it's the same thing. The water is taking on a molecular signature from the iterative dilution of uh, of an original fluid that actually had the compound in it, but as you dilute it, it becomes more powerful. And I don't understand the logic of that. Maybe it works on a quantum level, but again, we don't have the tools to prove this one way or another, and we haven't designed studies that would give us enough evidence that uh, anyone with the right devices would go looking very hard. So that uh, is my answer. Got another one here from Joan in Scotts Valley. Her email is masks. Dear Dr. Don, what is your opinion of masking in public places nowadays? What kind of mask do I need to wear? Well, Joan, that is uh, an insufficiently detailed question, really, because masking is a little bit like investing. You have to decide what your risk tolerance is, and that's going to vary a lot by situation, both in terms of investing uh, you're 20 and you want to take a flyer on Bitcoin versus uh, you're 68 and retired and you need a steady income stream, you know, you're going to make different decisions. And I think we all understand that we have different risks based on our age, based on our vaccination and booster status, and based on our exposures. So, an N95 mask or a KN95 mask and being vaccinated and boosted makes you safe to others. It's virtually impossible if you're vaccinated, boosted, and wearing one of these masks properly fitted that you're going to hurt your great aunt Sally at her birthday party at the care facility. A rapid antigen test and a surgical mask is probably almost as good and a great deal more comfortable. The rapid antigen test will show that you are below a certain threshold of virus, and the surgical mask will make sure that, that, that there won't be enough virus passing into the airstream of the individual. 
doing one or the other of these things, you very probably won't kill your high-risk older relative or friend, which, as far as I'm concerned, if you're a human being and you're vaccinated, this should be your first thought because you're still pretty protected against dying or being hospitalized at this point. But you're not protected against transmitting it because you have an asymptomatic case. So you have to go with what's your age. Do you have any high-risk conditions? And if yes, then an N95 or a KN95 in public indoor spaces is the belt and suspender approach that I recommend for individuals with risk factors. I want to talk for a moment about it, give you a tale of two cities. I live in uh, North Monterey County, which means I shop and uh, do all of my other sorts of household business in Watsonville. And I work in North Santa Cruz County, which means I have ample opportunity to observe the sociological differences. And what I observed was in Northern Santa Cruz County, uh, particularly the area around the university, that mask adaptation was very high, very rapid. People were very willing to wear masks and uh, socially distance and all of those things right out of the box. I saw high adherence. I didn't see that in Watsonville. I saw a lot of shrugging and uh, complacency until between Mother's Day and the 4th of July. And what happened in Watsonville, and I'm sure many other communities then, was that relatives, people you knew started to get sick. Your aunt got sick, your grandmother, your cousin who went to the wedding uh, was in the hospital and he was only 30. And suddenly it was real. And I saw the number of masks go way, way up in the area and it stayed up. And so I have to have basically two sets of etiquette and I'm watching the emerging etiquette. It's not weird to wear masks anywhere. That I think will never change. It used to be weird to wear a mask in public. I don't think we're ever going back to that. So that's true for both communities. But here in North County, I am starting to see more complacency, more people not wearing masks when debatably I think they should. I'm starting to I, I'm starting to see people have perhaps a sense of false security who can say. And I'm not seeing that in Watsonville. An etiquette has emerged. And basically, when I'm in Watsonville, I wear my mask. When I'm outdoors, I take it down. Uh, But when I'm indoors, I have one right on my arm. I put it on. It's the polite thing to do. Uh, That's not true in North Santa Cruz County. People don't appear to care as much or mind as much. And I'm not sure that's wise. I'm not sure who's right. But I'm fascinated about the sociology, it's realer, I think. It's less theoretical, and it's highly, highly interesting. We've got about five minutes left, and I'm going to take our uh, caller, and that is Aileen. And hello, Aileen, you're on the air. Yes, hello, dear doctor. I so love and enjoy your show. And again, once again, it's Aileen, French, with a short A. You know, I will get it. I will get it eventually. Sorry. But my question, please, is another aging question. Shortly after my conclusion of menopause in the 1990s, my self-made orgasms became so-called multiple, or as I like to describe using the word clusters, instead of one sweeping climax wave or as an ocean wave sweeping up and up with ripples of sensation. And um, back then I called the San Francisco Sex Institute and a man answered, to which he told me, I don't know. <laughs> and I called again, and a woman answered, I don't know. And uh, I haven't called forever. Maybe presently they would. But I thought, gee, maybe Dr. Laura knows. Well, I don't know about Dr. Laura, but I can give you some... I in- mean, I'm sorry. That's no, all right. It's all, it's, I it called was, you the wrong first name. I it's thought. funny. No worries. I keep calling you the wrong first name, so now Dr. we're now we're even. <laughs> Dr. Motika, but your first name again is Dr. Don. Yes. All right, my dear. Let me answer your question. Yeah. Uh, changes in orgasm are very common at menopause. We also see them at andropause, which is a slower process, less abrupt, and so men kind of often don't notice a drop in their testosterone. Oh, yeah. 
but in the case of women, it's a very sudden shock. And of course, estrogen is very active in the brain. It's effectively a neurotransmitter. And when mm-hmm. its levels drop, we see that. Now there is a, uh, a school of thought that we should be supplementing estrogen with very high doses. The problem I have with that is that as we age, we lose the ability to detoxify that estrogen. And so the rates of breast cancer go very right. high if you're giving big, big doses like that. So I don't recommend it. However, it is absolutely reported by the cohort that does that, that their orgasms do not shift. And they don't notice a shift in terms of the giant tsunami that you described uh, earlier. And I thought, by the way, you worded that very well. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Uh, that's it probably is related to estrogen levels. Secondly, you are not the first patient because I do ask about, I'm open to talking about sexuality with my patients. And so I do hear about either not being able to get over the hump, so to speak, to uh, have an orgasm or simply having a skipping stones experience, which I think would be your cluster. And, it's it yes it is and yes you can mm-hmm. see vaginal contractions which is the definition mm-hmm. of an orgasm by the way is involuntary yeah. vaginal contractions there's a bunch of other right. stuff that goes on right. but that one is how Kinsey defined it he actually had uh, you know pressure sensitive dildos that he used when he was doing research oh yeah uh, and reading the Kinsey report is he asked all of they they I should say because he had a, a, a female collaborator they asked the right questions. They studied them like scientists, and they were absolutely vilified for it. Not the first scientific martyrs, not the last. I'm sorry, my dear, I have to say goodbye. It's time to yield the chair to Howard for Giant Steps. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans, or Follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.